From the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald, and welcome to this special edition of Prairie Rome Companion. In this episode and the next two episodes, we'll hear a special presentation by Joel Barstad, who is professor of theology at St. John Vanney Theological Seminary in Denver, Colorado. This is a presentation that Dr. Barstad gave at a recent Faith for Life event in the diocese, and the title of his presentation was Handing on the Faith in Family and Culture. Again, this is the, the, this is the first of a three-part presentation, and I hope you enjoy it. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to contact me at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org, c-b-u-r-g-w-a-l-d at sfcatholic.org. Enjoy the presentation. I'd like to start with a prayer out of the Byzantine rite, which I hope you'll understand better at the end of my presentation than you may understand it now but it's a kind of theme for what I want to talk about. O Mother of God, through you and in the Incarnation, the indescribable Word of God became describable. For through the divine goodness, the Word spoken from eternity became an image. May we who believe in salvation clothe ourselves with the same image, both in word and deed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title, um, I was telling uh, a, a mutual friend of Mike's and mine, what the, the title of this talk, Handing on the Faith in Family and Culture, and he said, well, what does that mean? Um, and so I thought we'd start with, what does that mean? And the first question I want to ask is, who does the handing on? I think one of, the, one of the things that we can do, and it's sometimes a mistake to do it, is to think that we're the ones who do the handing on. That's part. It's true. We, we do have our place. We do, in fact, have our anxieties about being able to do that, especially for our children and for those who are close to us. But I want to start this afternoon with a reminder that it is not primarily we who do the handing on. So I want to, I want to read you something. My Bible's a little small, so I'll borrow, borrow this one. I'm a theology professor, so I have to quote the Bible occasionally. At the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, which is a book about the church and about those first dramatic decades of the handing on of the gospel of Jesus Christ, at the very beginning of St. Luke's account of the church, he starts it this way. In the first book, Theophilus, that is in my gospel, the gospel according to St. Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. And the other translations that I like better say, all that he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to the apostle and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, he gave it off, to, he gave, um, I'm sorry, in the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He answered them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a couple things I wanted to note in that. First of all, it's Jesus who is doing what's going to be done. It's true. He's chosen men through whom he's going to do that. But what does he tell them to do? He tells them the first thing they do in our, on their mission is to wait. Wait until they have what they need in order to do it. And what is it they need? They need the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? He is the one in whom Jesus is present to them in them, in their midst, to the end of the ages. And then when he tells them um, the next phase, it's not as though he tells them, now, once you've got this power from on high, then I want you to plan trips to uh, Judea and Samaria and all parts of the world. No, it's in the nature of a prophecy. He said, you will be driven into these parts of the world. So I want to begin um, th this discussion of the handing on of the faith with a certain kind of humility, a reminder of who is the protagonist of the drama of passing on the faith. Now that drama can get pretty intense. Giving up the control of who is in charge of communicating the faith uh, is not easy. St. Paul was completely turned around, turned upside down. His life was defined after a certain moment, defined entirely by the mission that he'd received to take the gospel. And yet, at the middle of the book of Romans, we discover something about Paul's frustration as an apostle. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing me witness that I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin, according to the flesh. What Paul is grieving about is the fact that his brother Israelites have not received Jesus and are showing no signs of receiving Jesus. And he says, I would trade my salvation if only they could find it. And so for the next couple of chapters, they're the hardest chapters in the Bible uh, for me to read, and maybe they were the hardest ones for Paul to write. He's wrestling with this paradox that here he's been sent into the world, the apostles have been sent into the, into the world by Christ, that it's Christ who works through them, and yet some people the people he most wants to hear this message turn away from it. And so he tries to, to give some reason of why that would be so. And what he's wrestling with is the, the great mystery of election. 
Mike talked about that earlier. Jesus doesn't choose the people we want him to choose. He chooses us. And then we're confronted with why. Why me and why not them? And sometimes that why not them takes a very acute uh, form of pain. At the end of his, of his discussion in chapters 9 and, and 10 and, and 11, um, he kind of works through this. And he ends it with this. He ends it with this. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him anything that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's an extraordinary um, moment where after, after dealing with the pain that the Lord isn't, the saving, isn't saving the ones He wants to have saved in the time that He wants to see them saved, He still, at the end, has had an experience of God which allows Him to fall on His knees and say, How marvelous are your ways, and I'll accept this mystery, and I'll keep doing what you've given me to do. Now, this, the reason I wanted to start with this is that this is, a, is, is one of those things that I've been having to learn in a particularly uh, difficult way in recent years in my own family. And some of you probably have been through this experience. My experience is, is by no means um, unusual. And that is where you have great hopes for children and as they move out into their own lives, as they begin to embrace their own destinies, uh, they don't take the path that you've given to them. Or they get confused about it, they get distracted. And I, I've had to work through exactly what Paul had to work through. I had to, I had to come to two realizations. I had to recognize that when I look at my son, my oldest son, the son that, well in the Old Testament you always hear about the firstborn and how important firstborns are. Well, this one is important to me because I remember very clearly that when he was born, I went through a four or five month transition where I left youth behind and I had to move into manhood. So this son, Greg, is bound up with my manhood in a way that the others weren't, that, that his birth marked a transition. And so in some ways, the difficulties that he has touch me in a way that maybe the others don't. Um, at least at a different place. So as I watch him struggle, uh, we talk about it. We talk about, um, we talk about church. He still will come most of the time. Um, he's not real belligerent when he doesn't. He just won't wake up. And so we end up having to, to leave. And, but I talk to him. I say, Greg, doesn't Christ mean anything to you? Yeah. Um, what about liturgy? When you're at liturgy, does, um, he says, I just don't get anything out of it, Dad. Now, that's forced me to a couple of things. One is to realize my powerlessness in front of this situation and, in a certain way, Greg's powerlessness. Greg loves me. 
my relationship with Greg is sound, um, but he's, we're waiting. We're both waiting in a certain way for God to act. Why does God act in the life of my third son now, but he's waiting in the case of Greg? So, in talking about this, in talking about handing on the faith in the family and in culture, we're not talking about a project with guaranteed success. We're talking about a process in which um, God is the protagonist and His ways are inscrutable. But, but in the last, I don't know, the last two months, I've been able to move to a position where, like Paul, I began to get a, I begin to get a glimpse that the Lord is in charge, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is not ignoring my son, Greg. Um, it's just he's not working with him in the way or in the time that I would wish. Now, what is it that I want to hand on to Greg, or Nick, or Tim, or Sophia, or Peter, or Francesca, or Catherine? Okay. They go from 21 to 6. Okay. And uh, in that age range, um, there's all kinds of handing on. There's all kinds of different things that, that we do. And with the little people, my little family as I call them, the 11-year-old on, on down, um, I, can, I can still read together with them in the evenings. And right now we're reading a, a historical novel about uh, the mission of Augustine of Canterbury to the English sent by Pope Gregory. It's a story written for their age. And that's one of the ways and we pass it on. We also read The Lord of the Rings and other fun books that, um, well these books are, I mean this other one, I don't read it if it's not fun. For me as well as for them. Um, but what is it that I want to hand on to them? What is the faith? What are we talking about when we're talking about faith? Well I think it's useful to remember the different ways in which we use a word like believe, when we say I believe. There's three important ways, and St. Augustine identified these and wrote a whole treatise on, on them, on the, uh, the usefulness of believing. And those three, those three meanings for believe are, first of all, when I say, I believe that God is. I believe that He exists, I believe that He's good, I believe that He's powerful. I, leave, I believe certain things about God. So I say certain things about God and I believe they're true. The next thing, though, is some of those things are told to me indirectly, but still the message gets through. They're told to me by God. That's what revelation means in, in, uh, in the scriptures and the fact that the scriptures are inspired. That's the, the, the message that, um, that the church has received is a message from God. So, okay, I'll believe God. Okay, so I believe God. If He talks, I'll listen. But the next one is the most interesting. I believe in God. Now what does that mean? What's the difference between saying I believe God and I believe in God? Well there is a moment where faith stops being merely intellectual. Faith stops being just agreeing with somebody. Um, agreeing that they know more than you do and so accepting what they say is true. Faith becomes a relationship of trust 
of dependence. It's a movement. Um, that, that preposition in means I'm moving into God. I'm resting on God. I'm leaning on God. So that's a very different kind of thing than simply saying I believe certain things about God or that I believe that what God is going to say is true. Now, how do these three work together? They work together, it seems to me, in this way. If my end, if my aim for my children is to get them to believe in God, to get them to believe in Jesus, then they have to know about Him. They have to know something about Him. You don't trust people that you don't know. You don't trust people who are not trustworthy. So we've got to, I've got to, to, to know something about them. I've got to teach, him about, teach them about Jesus. I've got to teach them about God and what He's like. Okay? I've got to teach them that the sources of, of, um, of that knowledge are reliable and trustworthy, that they can trust God and His messengers when they speak. I had a, a disturbing experience um, uh, with my third son, who's doing um, remarkably well, considering some of the trials that his older brothers have been through. Um, the advantage of having lots of kids is that the l younger kids start to learn from the older kids' mistakes. I'm beginning to discover this. Um, but this one is, is enthusi enthusiastic, but he had a moment of, of, uh, of hesitation. He had, a, in his growth and his faith, a moment of trial. Um, he went to Peru and he discovered that Peruvian Catholics are not as discreet as American Catholics are in the way they talk or act or sing to the Blessed Mother. And he was frankly a little scandalized by it. Okay? And so he comes back and we're talking about it and I say, well, you know, I am too. Okay. Three weeks later we're having a conversation and he, he confesses to me, not in an accusatory way, but he says to me, you know, when you said that, I really, it really was, it, it, um, it made it worse. He didn't use those words, that, but he struggled more because of my confession that I troubled it, that it, that it bothered me too. And what I realized in that moment was that I'm only halfway there with him because he believes the things that I believe, but he's still believing me, right? His, who he's believing, that credo Deo, that I believe God, that transition isn't complete yet. Um, hopefully, someday, he'll be at the point where he can believe even if I apostatize, God forbid. Okay. So there's that, that transition that has to take place. How is that, how is that communicated? The only way I can know to, to do that is <clears throat> if when he comes to me, he sees it with a question, um, if he only sees me answering it out of my great resources, okay, my great mind, my great learning, whatever I think is great, then he'll learn to trust me. Okay? If I've got all the answers, he's going to come to me for the answers. So what is most important for him to see is that I don't have those things. I stole them. Okay? And I have to show him where I stole them from. I have to let him see me going to the sources that I go to and that I depend upon for my faith. Okay. And it's very easy for someone of my temperament to like to be the answer man, 
Um, and so it's important, especially in my relationship with my kids, to understand that all my answers I got from somewhere else. What's the, the next thing? The next thing is that, that in God. It's similar. It's similar to that, that last point, that they have to see where I'm getting my answers, but they also have to see where I'm leaning. Who am I trusting? How do I show that to them? I'm, I'm not sure I, I do that very well yet. But certainly I hope that when we're at Mass together, that they see and know that I'm praying. Okay, I don't spend a lot of time thinking how it looks. Um, that would be to create the wrong, it would be disastrous. But I, my confidence is that over time, as they know me and as they see me in my relationship with life and with, with God, that they will understand where where my strength comes from, where my confidence is placed, and so on. But do I really want them to have that same kind of relationship with God that I have? Do I really want that? Because it comes with a certain cost. It comes with the cost of losing control. That is apparent, I will lose control at a certain point. Greg went through something difficult in the last few weeks, and I was there for him, right? I was willing to talk to him, I was there to scold him, I was there to listen and so on. But it was four nights later when he and his brother were smoking cigarettes together out on the deck that, that Nick got Greg to pray, okay? Something that I've, I've wanted. I wanted to do it, right? I wanted to be the one that got Greg to pray, but it wasn't given to me, it was given to Nick. Okay. So do I, want, do I want my children to have a relationship with God at the cost of losing control of that relationship? Okay. That's something I had to confront. But what it confronts us with, something that we know all along, Something that makes it a great thing to be a parent, but also terrifying, but in the end is the greatest consolation, is that these, these little people, these little bundles that come to us um, in the way they come to us, that they don't belong to us, that they belong to another, that their life is for another, that when you get right down to it, I don't know what their life is for, except in general terms. I don't know what their destiny is. My job is to help them make their way to it, but I don't necessarily illuminate that. I often think, I don't, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe this part of the country some years ago experienced this. I'm not sure what, what, what parts of the country were affected. But there, were, there was this practice for a while, I know, with the American frontier of sending orphans from back east um, to the West so that they could serve, at, so they could be adopted by farmers and ranchers and they would serve then in the, the, on the farm or the ranch. Okay, it's a source of, an uh, interesting source of labor, right? The question that every one of those adopting families um, had to ask was, at some point, am I just using this person? Am I just using this child? Am I preparing them 
for the moment when they have to go on and live their own life, or am I merely squeezing them for what I can get out of them? I sometimes envy those farmers and those ranchers because it seems to me they had a choice that was very explicit. It was very clear. But it's exactly the same choice that every parent has to face. Um, are these children mine? Whose are they? Who are they for? Now let's, let's take for granted that, um, that, that we are open at least to the possibility of letting our, our children go, that we're, that we're interested that they find their destiny, that they not just, um, not just fulfill our dreams. I don't, there's this movie that comes to mind, um, Dead Poets Society, some years ago, I don't know if, if you've seen it. There's a, there's a scene where, well, one of the characters is this, this kid who is just constantly repressed by his, his father, who's given him everything, okay, that, that, that curious paradox. But what it was is this father was oppressing his son because he expected his son to fulfill his dreams, to live out his dreams, that he was going to live his life vicariously through his son. And so the son wasn't free to explore his own um, destiny. And then when he starts to do it, he gets slapped. And in the end, um, he decides to stop trying and um, takes his life. Um, now that's very dramatic and so on, but I do think that that's the risk that we run if we crush people, crush our children into simply fulfilling our dreams for them. Okay, so what do I do to prepare my kids for their destiny? Given that I think that uh, that life has a certain meaning, has a certain structure. It's not as though when I say that their destiny is their own, um, that I'm completely ignorant about the world and what's good for them. I know who I want them to be in relationship with. I want them to believe in God. I want them to believe in Christ. Because I believe it's there that they can discover their destiny. That He is the master of their life. So how do I, how do I raise them in a way that um, respects that. Well, first of all, um, first of all, our task is to teach them how the world works. To the best of our knowledge, the best of our awareness, to understand what the world is, what's meaningful, what's valuable, and we do that by rules. We do that by insisting that they do certain things and that they not do certain things. We use the law to educate them, hopefully, to the, the real values of life. And we can get very elaborate in the law that we, we develop. Hopefully, um, we're all working at least with the Ten Commandments. You know, we don't want them to steal. We want them to be faithful when they get married. Uh, we want them to, to not kill each other first, and then not their friends or their enemies. We want them to learn how to control their desires um, so that they don't end up uh, coveting themselves into bankruptcy. We, we, don't want them, we want them to respect God. We want them to go to church. The, 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 basic, the basic things of the, of the Decalogue have served Christians for, for millennia now as the basic rules. 
for how one moves toward one's destiny, or at least how one keeps from missing one's destiny. The difficulty is, is that those, those rules aren't quite adequate. St. Paul notes that, that at the first time um, um, we're given a rule, the, 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 well, maybe not the first time, but pretty quickly, uh, we want to break it. So, so we have Mike Epler here, um, the rule breakers. And some, sometimes our humanity responds precisely in that way. And in certain ways, that's exactly what we're supposed to learn. That, that's exactly, now Mike put the positive spin on it, um, that it's precisely our desires that are, uh, the desires that God wants to answer that, um, that are breaking through these, this restriction. And so the desires have to be educated in, in a certain way. But there's also that business of, of sin that uh, I want to do it myself. Okay. Now, when God, God tried the law for a long time, working by refining it, expanding it, hedging it in, so one of the one of the most interesting concepts about about Jewish life that I learned from a, an Orthodox coworker of mine was this notion of the hedge. So if you have a commandment that you believe that God really cares about, what you do so that you don't end up breaking that commandment is that you build a hedge around it of other smaller commandments, and so you protect the big commandment by lots of little ones. And so, hopefully, if you keep busy, people busy keeping the little ones, they never, and breaking the little ones, keeping and breaking the little ones, they never get around to breaking the big ones. Okay. But it doesn't really deal with, um, with the nature of reality completely. It's a certain feature of reality, but it doesn't deal with the nature of reality completely. The extraordinary thing about Jesus was that he fulfilled the law, but he did it by a certain kind of intensifying of the law. It was an intensification that went beyond rules. In fact, he caused constantly exactly the same kinds of scandal that, uh, that the fat Puerto Rican priest causes wherever I've seen him go. I remember walking up a hill with him. Um, he was going to speak at a Baptist college and we're walking up the hill, and you can imagine, I mean, I, you'd have to see him to really be able to imagine, but imagine me plus, okay, <laughs> trudging up a fairly steep hill to speak at this Baptist college. And he says to me, he says, I, I can't believe this. They're making me walk up this hill, and I can't even blaspheme because I'm surrounded by these pious Christians. <laughs> okay. So he always finds some way to scandalize um, and yet, and yet, like uh, like Mike, I've seen I've seen that kind of I've seen that man in particular look at a person in a way that went beyond all of those rules. That he was able to look at a person and he was able to address them at the level of their destiny. That's what Jesus did. And in the course of that, a lot of his talk, a lot of the time he spent um, talking with people, 
eventually it turned around to an argument, okay? And, and so there were these um, committees that would be sent to, to ask tough questions of this new teacher to find out really where he stood on the controversial issues of the day. They would, call, they, would, they would ask him about the Sabbath. Well, do you think it's right to heal on the Sabbath? How does Jesus answer? He says, well, if your ox or your donkey falls in the well, are you going to pull it out on the Sabbath, even on the Sabbath, even though you're not supposed to pull things and lift things and carry things? Of course you are, because you love, or at least you need, your ox and your, your, your donkey. Why wouldn't this woman whose hand has been shriveled for all these years um, be worthy of the same affection? So he heals her. Then they, what they want to do, they want to kill him because he's breaking the rules. Not only has he torn down the hedge, he's breaking in their minds one of the big ones. What is a, what is a rule? What is a rule for? That's always the question we have to ask when we face a rule. What is the rule for? There's a, St. Thomas, when he talks about the various virtues, he, when he's talking about the virtues required to be a good judge, a legal judge, he says that the virtue that a judge has to have is he has to know what the rule is for. And why does he have to know what the rule is for? Not so that he can spot when it's broken, because every one of us can spot when a rule is broken. It's so that when the rule is broken, he knows whether it was right to break it or not. And the only way you can know whether it was right to break that rule was if you know what the giver of the rule meant it to do. Because sometimes you have to break the rule to keep the rule. Okay? Now you have to be careful telling your kids this. Okay. My point is that what we have is this very disturbing process in the course of Jesus' ministry where he's turning people's understanding of the rules upside down. For one thing, he makes them look at their own hearts. He turns their attentions away from the outside deeds that they're supposed to be avoiding or doing. And he starts looking at the heart. Uh, Moses, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery already with her in his heart. You have heard it said that you shall not kill, but I tell you that if you get angry with your brother and call him a fool, an idiot, that you should be brought up before the council because you've murdered him in your heart. So he goes through and he, he, he deepens the, the law, um, confronts us with how difficult it is to live the law, confronts us with the, the roots of that. And what do we discover? We discover that the law, that even the Ten Commandments are like a hedge around the real thing, the real point. And what is that? Well, we get close to it when the one scribe comes and says, what are the two, what's the greatest commandment? Okay, that's the same question, right? Which is the commandment that is most important to keep or not break. And Jesus says, the great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy strength. And the second is like unto it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And then the scribe wishing to justify himself, we're told, 
says, well, who's my neighbor? And then we get that beautiful parable of the Good Samaritan, where we're basically told um, that sleazy Samaritan whom you despise and whom you would never call your neighbor um, is actually a good neighbor to a man who was beaten by robbers. And you should be the same, even if it's a Samaritan who's beaten by robbers. Now, is Jesus giving a new rule? No. No, because it's something that can't be captured quite in rules. It's the thing around which rules are organized. He's talking about an attitude in front of God and in front of other people that he calls love, but is very difficult for us. What we find in Jesus himself is the fullness of the law, not in the sense of one who kept the rules in their, their absolute minutiae and in the correctness which the, the Pharisees expected, um, but someone who fulfilled the heart of the law, and that was to love first God and then those around him. Now this notion of a hedge, this is, this is very important to how we deal with, with law. What do we do when we have lawbreakers around us? What happens if we just ignore them? We can't just ignore them. Things go from bad to worse. If we don't stop them, not only will they ruin their lives, they'll ruin the lives of somebody else. We've got to stop them. What if my kids are doing and living in a way that I do not approve of? that I see as destructive to them, that I see as destructive to the family. At some point, I have to throw them out, right? I have to cut them off. This, this is the natural dynamic of, of law. But is it the natural dynamic of love? That's tough. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes I have to step back and I have to let my kids take the consequences of their actions. And that's the only thing I can do to teach them. Right? I've told them, and I've told them, now they've got to find it out for themselves. Okay, so love sometimes does that. But, what did Jesus do? It's just, it, Mike told us the story of Zacchaeus. The crowds were expecting Jesus to come in and kick ass. John said, he's going to come, he's going to lay an axe to the trees, he's going to cut them down, the bad things are going to be burned, he's going to come in, he's going to separate wheat from chaff, there is going to be a glorious fire, he is going to baptize you with fire. In fact, when Jesus starts ministering, John sends him some messengers and said, Did I get it wrong? Are you really the one who was supposed to come? Why? Why did he send that? That message? Because Jesus was not cleaning house. Jesus says, Go back and tell John what you've seen. That the lepers are cleansed. That the blind see. That the lame walk. That the poor are given comfort and hope. Jesus ate with sinners. He, he went home with Zacchaeus. 
He tore down the hedge. He forgave them unconditionally. Before they even asked, he forgave them. Now, why did he do that? Because he loved them. Did he forget about the rules? No. An adulterous woman doesn't love her husband. So he has to say to her, go and sin no more. But he's not going to throw stones at her. Now it seems to me that this, precisely this, this balance of, of knowing how to deal with someone in love, deal with our children in love, this is where the, where the faith is transmitted in its most, what, its most um, fleshly way. And those judgments are the most difficult judgments. But we are never allowed to turn away from love in order simply to enforce rules, because the rules have their meaning in this love. Now, when sinners encounter Jesus, what did they encounter? Mike, I think, gave us beautiful images of a gaze. They encountered something, someone who could look them in the eyes and tell them the truth about themselves. You are a sinner. And someone who could promise them that even though you are a sinner, I can fulfill your destiny. I am your destiny. If we want to hand on the faith to our children, if, they want, if we want them to believe in God, we have to pray that they have that kind of encounter. And we have to offer the Lord places where He can encounter them in that way. Understanding, of course, that it's He who is the protagonist. He is the one who initiates the encounter. When a sinner encounters Christ, what he encounters is the perfect fullness of the law. But he encounters the perfect purity, the perfection of love, in a way that says, I love you. And so in that moment, I am, I am aware that I am a sinner. You don't need to tell me which rules I've broken. I'm confronting a way of looking at reality, a way of looking at God, a way of looking at other people, which is completely different than the way I look. You don't even have to, to interpret the law about um, the way uh, one looks in one's heart or anger. I'm confronted with someone who judges reality in a completely different way and engages reality in a different way. And yet to be loved by such a person. Now I want to wrap up this, this portion of my presentation by saying I think the first thing that we do for our kids to hand on the faith, a thing that respects the fact that it is God who acts in their lives, that their destiny is theirs and not mine, that it's for God to give and not for me to, to give, is we, 
we have them baptized. Why do we have them baptized? We have them baptized because in baptism, the Lord says to my child, you are mine. Baptism brings together all of these these themes that we've talked about. The initiative of the Lord. The forgiveness of sins. The possibility of a new life. Uh, This was brought, brought home to me very clearly by one of my sons, the second son, recently. I found out after after months of working with him and various lapses and so on, I thought he was I thought he was over a certain challenge. And then I find out that he'd he'd smoked dope with somebody. And I was so angry. And he said to me, he says, Dad, he says, don't do that to me. He said, the only way uh, that I can get through this, through a mistake like that, through a failure like that, is if I just am able to confess it and put it behind me and move on. And I realized that that that's exactly what he needed. He needed for me to to reaffirm that forgiveness and that that baptism. But it meant that I had to trust in a new way, with a new step, that the Lord was taking hold of my son's life and, and guiding him. The kind of detachment that's required to love is really um, one of the great paradoxes of Christian life. My mother talks about how difficult it was for her to have me baptized. She'd had a a stillborn, her first child was stillborn, and then the second was a a miscarriage. And so when it came to me, she didn't want to let me go. And for her, the moment of my baptism meant that she was saying to God, He's yours and you can do whatever you want with him. And she almost didn't do it. Because it was so hard to do that. There's even a practice in the church of godparents. And in the early days, this was the way the church um, educated, catechized people precisely to this kind of detachment. When the child goes into the font and then comes out of the font, he's not handed back to the parents. The child is handed to the godparents. This is not a relationship that we give by virtue of our natural relationships. It's a new relationship, a new destiny. Okay, so I want to break here. We'll take uh, 15 minutes and do what we want.